This is the Dave Duran Show with Dave Duran. Welcome to the Dave Duran Show. We have quite a show here today. We're going to talk about motivation, perspective, perception, uh, analogies, and the way that you can actually reach people. That's going to be the first segment. Then after that, we're going to be talking to Mark Middendorf, the president of Ave Maria University, and he has really a great history of, um, of building great organizations. Uh, he was, in fact, he's really the primary founder of Lighthouse Catholic Media. He gives credit to others, but he's, uh, he's the primary founder of Lighthouse Catholic Media. He also was, uh, played a very important role at the Augustine Institute. So we're going to talk uh, leadership uh, with him. Uh, and then after that, we've got some really good Q&A. Uh, Nico, we've got a couple of good questions teed up there. I think one of them is about whether or not socialism and entrepreneurship are, are cohesive. A uh, student who's uh, tangled a bit with one of his professors on the topic. That's right. Uh, and then we've got another topic on motivating kids, right? I think four kids, uh, different temperaments. Uh, some are motivated, some are not. Maybe some tricks on that. So we're going to dive in right now to motivation, perspective, and perception. Well, today, Nico, we're talking about motivation. Uh, you know, it's a topic that comes up all the time. How do I motivate this person to do that? How do I motivate myself? What do I do? I did write a book called Perpetual Motivation. We're not going to really address much of what's in that book, but in essence, the book is about how um, if you balance things out in your life, you're going to do way better in motivating yourself. You know, I mean, a lot of people take themselves out of the game because they're focused on one area of their life. They're very into their finances, but then what happens is other parts of their life start to, uh, you know, waffle and become complicated because they've neglected them. And the very thing they love, which is their finances now get uh, complicated because they have to take time away to repair the other parts of their life. So basically if you if you balance the important things in life and you know you don't balance faith, it's supposed to be integrated in everything you do, but your faith, your family, your finances, your physical health, your social contributions, your continued education, that's basically the essence of keeping the preventative methods of uh, motivation in action. It's how people can have long-term success. But today we're going to talk about it from a different perspective. We're going to talk about perception and perspective, which of course entirely are related. And if you want to motivate a person, there are certain things you need to do in order to reach them in a particular way. And there takes some willingness to do this. You know, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is understanding. Understanding is a key uh, component to motivating somebody. I mean, if you literally, if you want to change something in your own life, you have to understand yourself and the circumstance and what might be motivating you and then understand where you should go. If you're talking to somebody else, you clearly need that too. And this is where the gift of understanding really comes in. And it is to say that most people think that understanding, they confuse it, I should say, with agreeing, okay? This person is doing this bad behavior or committing this particular sin. Um, therefore, I just kind of understand. I can't understand why they would do that, okay? I would never do that. Well, hey you don't have to agree with what they're doing to understand it. I mean, frankly speaking, if you were that exact same person in the exact same setting, formed and shaped by the exact same experiences, there's probably a strong likelihood you would be behaving the same way. Um, but if you can illuminate something in them to help them get back off that track into someplace else, they can do better. But it's very difficult to do without understanding. So if you're going to condemn somebody by, based, by saying, I don't understand your behavior you've lost them. They say, well, I can't relate to you then. You know, it's, it's kind of like, um, even with young kids, when you're trying to teach them purity, you're, 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 
you see something on TV and it's a very attractive woman, maybe dressed in a way that would catch anyone's eye. And if you just go, that's disgusting. And you turn the channel, your young son might be looking at you saying, well, not so much to me. You know, maybe, maybe your generation is different than mine, dad, but I, I found that interesting. So instead to say, well, that's, that'll catch your eye, won't it? I mean, God made women beautiful, didn't he? But here's why we need to have custody of our, our eyes. And here's, you know, the, the understanding that that's somebody's daughter and that could be somebody, somebody's wife someday. And here's how we need to show respect and understanding. Now, that's a different thing because it's not a condemnation like, hey, son, you're totally different than me. I have no interest in that. And I find it disgusting when the son finds it kind of attractive. I mean, there's a big difference, right? So being able to understand pulls that child into a place of, oh, okay, so you have to deal with the same things I have to, dad. Huh? I understand you, you understand me, and now we're on the same path to overcome something that could be challenging. And as years go by, that understanding matters. Understanding also has to do with the fact that we all have different gifts, not by way of just the Holy Spirit, but natural gifts that we were given. And I give the example all the time of height. You know, if you're 6'5", you can't take credit for it. You can take credit for what you do with it, but you can't take credit for being 6'5". Well, some of us just have a greater understanding or intuition of things or a perception of things. There's recently a study, there's a lot of studies like this that make the point where there are some people who are blind um, who if you were to give them like a sphere or a block okay, they could tell you which one is which. Say, this is a sphere, this is a block. Well, if they have never seen before and now their sight is is given to them, and this has happened, there's some, some amazing technologies, I don't know, and you show them the sphere and you show them the block, they can't tell you which one is which. They, You, you would think that we would go, well, why wouldn't they be able to perceive that? I mean, they're not fe- feeling angles on it. And to us, that just seems intuitive that you would know that this is the sphere and the other is is the block. But there's no frame of reference for them. And in fact, it, it, they have a very difficult time with perception, meaning distances. The, to them, when something walks away, someone walks away or a car drives away and it gets smaller, it's fascinating. Like, how does that happen? But for us, we have this natural understanding of this because our experience allows us to have a certain perspective or perception that somebody who's never experienced this has. Now, this is, the reason this is important is because we all naturally do these things more or less uh, than each other. There are some people that when they think, they think in pictures. There are people that when they think, like me and most people actually, you have an inner dialogue. You can actually hear your voice inside your head saying things. But there are some people that literally don't have that. They don't have an inner, inner dialogue that does that. There are some people that can't make images or pictures in their minds like other people can. Um, in fact, if there was a study that was done that said, I want you to picture an apple, and people tried picturing an apple. Some people couldn't picture it at all. Like there's no picture of an apple. There might be an essence of an apple in their head, but they can't, they can't actually picture it. Same with taste. Some people can say, um, uh, can you imagine peanut butter and jelly in your mouth right now? And the person can imagine it right to the point where they're like, oh, I'm tasting it right now and I can feel it. Others can't at all. Or imagine this sound or music. Some people can do it. Some people can't do it. One of the most fascinating ones, though, that illuminates a little bit more. And the reason I mentioned those is because 
our experience and our education is going to form our perspective and our perception of things, okay? But in addition to that, there's a natural gift about it. Some of it actually is influenced by virtue, where if we increase our virtues, okay, and we accept and participate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we have an, an increased illumination in some of these areas. But here's an example. If you were to take like a 3D model of maybe a little town or something, and you were to be able to walk around it and see the whole thing and then sit down on one side of it, and somebody else sits down on the other side, um, you can see what you can see clearly. And if you were to say to the other person, draw what I see, or at least describe what I see, a person who does have general understanding, a person who has like kind of an awareness and even more than that, an empathy has the ability to describe what you're seeing from your side physically. Okay. Why is that? Well, empathy uh, uh, for a person is to be able to understand the other person's perspective, the other person's situation, what they're experiencing. And so being able to do that is actually tied to many of these things. Now, this is a buildup. It's a buildup to how do we motivate somebody else? How do we participate in their ability to get things done? See, when you're going to lead somebody, one of the most crucial things you're going to have to do is to elevate their performance, to get them to see things at a higher level and for them to take more ready to action, to do things quicker than they other, otherwise would and to do them better than they would. And a lot of this has to do with just believing they can or tapping into the energy to do so. Okay, it's that classic motivation. So um, how do we do this? And how do these things actually affect this? How do they matter? One of the greatest ways to motivate somebody is to actually use stories and analogies and parables. Of course, we know Christ did this and did it very effectively. But why does it work? That's the question we really have to understand. It shifts perspective. That's why. Somebody can tell you something, you don't really relate to it. So I'm, I remember uh, when I was... In college still, uh, I had not yet graduated, but I started my own company and I sold Cutco knives the year before that. But now I'm a manager and I'm running my own small like franchise for the Cutco business. And I have to motivate and recruit a bunch of young people to go out there and sell these knives. Now, I did not come from money. So I lived in a very simple town where, you know, people talked about the price of these knives and they're very expensive. I mean, a set of these knives is, you know, between, I don't know, probably $1,500 to $2,000 now, you can probably get an introductory set for maybe eight or $900. But anyway, they were, they were the same amount of uh, expensive in relative terms back then, including inflation and whatnot. Uh, so anyway, I, I remember a lot of people were just blown away by the expense. And these young people were saying, there's no way I could convince anyone to buy these knives. And I was in the same boat, absolutely. But I would help them by shifting their perspective. And I would say, well, let me ask you a question. Um, does anybody here have a pair of tennis shoes? Basketball shoes in particular. They would raise their hand. Person would go, how much did how you spend on your basketball shoes? 150 bucks. $150 on shoes? And I'd say, well, at least you get to wear them every day for the rest of your life, right? And if they ever wear out uh, or go out of style, you get new ones replaced. And they start laughing. No, I mean, they only last for a few months. I have to get new ones. I said, and you spend $150 on them? Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm jesting and having fun with this young person. They're like, yeah, why? And I said, well, these knives, the person can use, use they're, they're going to use them two or three times a day, every day for the rest of their life. And if they ever wear out, they're going to get them replaced for free. And that helped shift the perspective because they thought, oh my goodness, if I could spend $300 on a pair of shoes, but I got that deal from it, I would easily do it. I wouldn't think twice about it. 
And then I'd ask, has anybody ever gone to a concert? Yes. How much did you pay for the tickets? I use the same exact. I'd say, well, at least you can replay that concert every single day for the rest of your life. I mean, you can keep re-going to it, right? That's a lifetime pass for the concert. And they go, no, it's a one-time thing. So you've got to be kidding me. And we would laugh about that. And I'd ask about an, an, an instrument, who here plays the whatever. And then when I heard somebody actually had a violin that was worth $18,000, the whole class was like, you've got to be kidding me. Golf clubs, all of these different types of things where people will spend money on them. And that perspective helped the young person. I also told them this. I said, listen, nobody expects you to buy the knives. Who would? At your age, that's kind of a silly thing. But let me ask you a question. Is your dad going to buy the same tennis shoes you bought and go to the same concert? No. Okay. So you have to understand that when you're selling this, you don't have to own that conviction for yourself like you'd say, I would buy this set. Okay. You just have to understand the client and know that they value it. Because if you walk in basically with no value or conviction, you can't influence somebody else. And so you you don't have to you don't have to be the other person and even value what the other person values to inspire them to take action on it. You just have to relate to them. And this is one of the biggest things that I see is the gap that gets in the in between really great, great leaders and other people is when a person is their pride is so high that they are unwilling to relate. Well, I'm just a motivated person. You're not a motivated person. I just do my job. You don't just do your job. Just do it like me. Well, that's not understanding them. There's all sorts of different temperaments out there, all sorts of different types of people under all sorts of different types of stresses. And I can tell you, uh, you know, just last week, Nico, we talked about um, uh, talking, public speaking, right? Somebody asked a question. They said, well, you know, how do I increase my game? And I said, there's three audiences you're always speaking to in your public speaking, a group that's on board, a group that's not on board, and then somewhere in the middle, there's somebody else that could be convinced. And unless you actually address the idea that you know they're all there, okay, I know that some of you are probably really into this idea. That's great. You might even be more excited about it or more knowledgeable than me. And that person goes, yep, that's me. He acknowledged me. I have been thinking the whole time I'm smarter and more, more knowledgeable than you than this. And I'm distracted by it because you think you're smarter than me, given the talk. Now I actually respect you because you pointed me out, even though you didn't use my name, by saying, hey, I'm smarter than you. So this guy's probably even smarter than I thought. Okay. Then there's the other person that's not into it. And they're like, wow, at least you know that I'm here. I'm not into this. Okay. Well, maybe I will give you a chance because you're at least smart enough to know that I'm in the audience. And the other group needs to be convinced. Well, this whole idea is basically understanding and shifting perspectives. But here's the real outcome that's important. One of the big takeaways that I have for you. You never stop until you reach the person. That's the point. You don't say, I gave an analogy that satisfied me. I understand this perspective. Therefore, I'm good to go. You don't look at the other person and try to give them an analogy and they don't get it and then think, well, I'm going to give up on you. If it's an important topic, you become more resourceful and you come up with different ideas and different perspectives and see how you can help a person get there. Now, some people would, are naturally better at analogies, metaphors, and storytelling. That is a very real thing. But if you lack that on your own, you have the tool of questions. Well, tell me, what about this do you not understand? What do you like about this? What would excite you about this? What are the things that are getting in the way of you being able to do things? And you ask questions. Those questions can very often illuminate things and trigger ideas in your mind to help you further move that person into, into a different direction. But see, 
One of the things that we're going to get into next week on the program is we're going to talk about the transcendental desires and how as a leader, if you can actually help people understand the beauty, the goodness, okay, and the truth in any circumstance, let alone other kind of relative uh, transcendentals like unity and home and all these other things, love. But when you can see goodness, truth, and beauty, um, you can start to actually be motivated. Why? These are transcendental desires. These are desires that we all have. In our human nature, we have a desire for them. Why do we have a desire for them? Because ultimately speaking, they reach us toward God, right? The only perfectly good thing is God. The only fullness of the truth is God. The perfect beauty, the beatific vision that we actually have in heaven is God. And so we're drawn toward God, which is why we're actually drawn toward goodness, truth, and beauty here on earth, because it pulls us closer to God. So if you're leading people in an ugly way uh, that's not good, it's bad, and it's filled with deceit and lies, you're not going to motivate them because it runs against human nature. So we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But until then, we've got a great guest coming up, Mark Middendorf. Mark Middendorf, uh, he's one of the co-founders of Lighthouse Catholic Media. Many of you are familiar with that. He also uh, was a very important uh, player in the Augustan Institute. And he is now the president of Ave Maria University. Just a fantastic gentleman. Uh, Talk about a person who knows how to motivate people. So we're going to be back with our interview with Mark Middendorf in just a bit. This is the Dave Duran Show with Dave Duran. There's a little bit of confusion I think that people have about, you know, your faith permeates every answer and it permeates every decision that you make. And I think the confusion that people have is that that is somehow separate from being, and I use the word ferocious, a ferocious leader. Because um, ferocity is like almost like uh, to a degree being dangerous, okay? And it is to say that you have so much peace and so much kindness and so much goodness, but you have the mentality of a protector of something that is important to you, that you value, and that is something that is oftentimes not your own. Like when you gave your life's work away, you didn't see it as yours. It was stewardship. And what is any mother bear going to do or papa bear when somebody threatens the cubs? They're going to become ferocious, But unless they need to defend it, they're going to be peaceful. And I think people get confused about that. You know, we talk a lot about the virtues. And those virtues, I think, make people think that it's just like this total softness. But Jesus turned over the tables himself. You know, when is there that time to know, hey, this person's got to go? Or this thing has to be changed in the culture, and it's probably going to make some people upset. But we need to make a difficult decision. How do you blend that with the the kindness and the joy of the culture that you want people to have so that it's an enjoyable place to be. We have an obligation, really, when it comes down to it, that uh, if we're giving, if we're put in a particular area of responsibility and we're given charge over that, then we have to do to the utmost of our ability everything to most fully perform our responsibilities. And sometimes it is, you have to let people go. Sometimes you got people, and frankly, I've always found like on letting people go, they're happier to, you know, if somebody's on the wrong seat on the bus, you do them a disservice by keeping them on that seat. You do the whole team that reports up with them or to them or under, or they work for someone else uh, a disservice. 
And the person themselves, you know, will be in a better state of mind if they're doing what more their gifts are. Like, you know, you've got the Myers-Briggs and you've got these different types of group things out there that kind of, deter, you know, give you like where are your best attributes and, and mm-hmm. what, what ought you to be doing? Speaking of Pat, Pat Lanzioni, the working genius. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, just, that's one of his most latest books. Is on so we did that. We took, all, we had our, like my whole cabinet do the working genius. And it's amazing mm-hmm. when you go around the room and you ask people, and, and you can tell if somebody's not doing their working genius, but yet that's really what they would, they want to be doing. You, you know, sometimes it's moving people around or sometimes it's just totally letting someone go. But, um, you know, in the end, I've found, you know, and we always do it with, uh, you know, we'll have different things to help that person after they leave, in a sense, sometimes mm-hmm. it's on a spiritual side of things. But, you know, from my perspective, uh, I work for the Lord. So, like, I will have to give an account of the use of my time and talents and treasure uh, at the end. So, for me, it's it's not done out, done out of fear. It's out of love. Like, I, I totally mm-hmm. feel... Uh, God's put me in this place. I, I Like when I first, when we started up Lighthouse Catholic Media, I thought, well, I'm going to be there the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have three times in my life, and this is probably going to be a little bit over the top for some people that if they're not there on the spiritual side, or it's not a big part of their life, but I'll just share personally, three times in my life, it wasn't an audible voice or anything like that, but it was a deep interior voice. I knew God was calling me to do something. And I knew if I didn't do it, uh, that was not going to end well for me long-term. So the yeah. first was in 05 to leave the corporate world because I loved what I was doing in the corporate world. I mean, it wasn't like I got up and, and bemoaned the fact that I had to go to work. I loved what I was doing. And I was passionate about the people I worked with. I was passionate about the products that we sold and the good that they those things were doing in the corporate world. So that was in 05. In 2015, it was the same thing to donate my life's work. And I, then I thought, oh, I'm going to be at a, this company in Colorado for the rest of my life. And I thought, okay. And, and I was at peace with it, even though I knew it was going to involve some crosses, if you will, along the way. And then the same thing happened basically uh, in 2022 to come down to, to Ave Marie University. I'd, I'd known about this place. I'd been a donor since 02, mm-hmm. uh, but... And I sent my kids here, but I never thought I would be here. And so it's just being open. But what's interesting, too, is that you took kind of that um, that academic world by storm by bringing in so many business principles to it and transforming what was already a great organization, by the way. I mean, you know, anything Tom Monahan's going to start, it's going to be incredible. Um, but tell me a little bit about some of the changes that you've had to make in any organization you've ever been in. I think if we go back to the beginning with Tom Monahan, who is the founder, really, and and here's a guy that built Domino's Pizza, and I think he's going to be up on your show in the future yeah. here, but uh, a guy that was, his dad died when he was four and a half years old, raised in an orphanage by these Catholic nuns, lived in like six foster homes, joined the Marines when he was 19, came up with his five principles of life and then set out to live those principles, which then ended up, he he, and he, he basically created Domino's Pizza when there was no even home delivery system for 
food. Yeah. You know, so he had, there wasn't even a pizza box. Right. He had to create everything. And yeah. And when I talked to Tom and, and, and then, you know, like, and then he sells Domino's pizza, you know, back in 1998, I think it was for over a billion dollars. That was a billion dollars in that year. And so when he founded this university 25 years ago, and this will be our 25th year, he not only invested $500 million into it, but he spent the first nine years of his life traveling every weekend from Michigan to Florida, living in the dorms, putting everything into it. And today he's back. He's fully in, involved in it. He's uh, he's he's down here uh, today. And uh, so what are we trying to do? When I got here, I read kind of the Tom's vision for the university and we're fully implementing, I would say, that vision, but in some ways with bringing in Kaizen and lean principles and these other things that maybe weren't in the vision 25 years ago because they really weren't known 25 years ago as well, but today are. And so we're just trying to leverage all of that and stay true, stay faithful to the original vision. And that's um, and so to do that, we had to make some changes. So, uh, you know, in, in some cases, uh, you know, we're looking for, we don't offer tenure for faculty. We're one of the few universities. Why? Because if you take care of people, if you treat them well, you don't need tenure. And and we have some of the best faculty in the world come in here. We have mm-hmm. faculty that are leaving Ivy League type schools and places like that. With come, tenure. Right. To, to come teach here because mm-hmm. they love our students. You know, and we have... Our past fall, we had, you know, that's one of the things. We raised the minimum GPA to get in here. So we have one of the highest minimum GPAs of all of our peer schools that are like us. 20% of our incoming class were in the top 7% academically nationally. Um, They're the valedictorians and the salutatoriums and stuff. The core, which which are, are the core curriculum, we updated the core to put back a certain things that were there originally, but then somehow kind of came out over time. And, um, and so it's just getting back to the roots, I would say of, of what we were called to be and what we were called to do and, uh, just being true to that. And it's amazing, uh, how that's worked. I mean, we have, uh, for our, Commencement speaker, not this year. This year it's going to be Father Michael Schmitz, but next year it's going to be Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire. So, uh, mm-hmm. but, and I think I heard him on his show say uh, he was talking to Ben Shapiro and, and uh, they said, Where would you send your kids? And I think he said, I'm he Yeah. He said, I'm yeah. Here. You know, and here's a guy that went to an Ivy League type school. So, so that's really, I would say, just staying focused on what we're called to be and not going beyond that in a sense. So, but also recognizing the needs. So we added a computer science major because there wasn't that major here. We're looking at engineering right now. We're looking at some, we added nursing not too long ago. Uh, So there's some, you know, we have 35 majors, but there were certain things that we were missing in a sense. And it's just filling out some of those pieces, if you will, and, and making sure that on the faculty, staff, and student side, we're really staying true to the core values, getting students, faculty, and staff that all exhibit those core values. So we're on the same page when, 
you know, when, when we're here. Yeah. I mean, so Mark, here's a question for you. If you had to look back at the 20 year old you and sit down, okay. And say, Hey, if I would have known then what I know now, what would you be telling the 20 year old you so that he could have sped the process up? And, you know, when you look at it from a providential perspective, I don't know that the process could or should have been sped up, but but uh, to, to go back and to say, you know, you could have been more effective in that regard, what would be the thing that you would have advised your younger self? First off, when I got down here, I knew I was being called to come here, but I really didn't understand it. It was like, I loved what I was doing in Denver. Like, why come here? Mm-hmm. But two weeks after I got here, it was so clear to me, God had been preparing me my whole life from the time I was in the secular world, all the jobs I did in the secular world and the work I did. And then with Lighthouse and then with Augusta Institute, all of that was preparatory for what I'm doing today. And so I would say to people, whatever you're doing right now, you should be pouring all of yourself into that to be the absolute pinnacle of excellence around you to inspire others. But also uh, because that is a training ground for what God, where you may be called later on in life. Uh, to do, you know, and maybe it's a merger, maybe it's an acquisition, maybe it's to do a takeover of some other company to to reestablish them, you know, whatever it might be. But I think that's the first thing is all the each job I had, I didn't see it at the time I was in it, but it's so clear to me now with hindsight. The second mm-hmm. piece is, I think it was Tom or Jordan Peterson that in a, a podcast I was listening to from him that said 85% of billionaires in the United States today did not inherit it. They're all self-made in a sense. And what was one common thing they all did? They all read a book a week. Mm -hmm. And I would say for me, that constant learning and, and and not just learning for the sake of learning, but learning then trying to put it into action and making sure you're getting great books. You know, so I would say that's that's the second thing. And, um, you know, from a a third item, his name was Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He had the largest, back in his day, a TV program called Life is Worth Living. I think he had 32% market share in the secular world. He did what for he never missed it a single day in his life. He called it was called the daily holy hour, and it was spending time uh, in front of what we call the blessed sacrament in adoration every day. And so, for me, if I could do one thing different, I do that today. I spend an hour every day, and sometimes you have to get up really early to make sure you don't miss. I would say also what we call uh, it's another thing that's way out there, but if they Google. Because there's a lot of things people misunderstand it to represent, but it's called marrying consecration. Uh, so everyone, a lot of your listeners are familiar with Pope John Paul II, and you know he's a, obviously a very world figure and famous person. When asked, when he was asked, what was the difference maker in your life? You would think he might say, "Well, when I became a priest, no. When I became a bishop, no. When I became a cardinal, no. When I became the pope." No. He said the different the what the change in his life, the most important thing he ever did in his life that started was when he made his marrying consecration. So um 
And that was before all those other things. So for me, it would be those two things. Uh, if I had started those much earlier, you know, I didn't even know what those things really were, I would say, uh, when I was in college and, and things. I had heard of them, of course, but never you know, done them. When, when you think about that sort of thing, uh, you know, most people are kind of afraid to answer a question like that. Uh, you know, the, they, they're afraid to integrate the way faith has impacted their life. So they give kind of a sanitized answer, uh, even if they believe it, because it's, it's, you have to be courageous to do that sort of thing. Or what they do is they talk around it in ways that they don't realize that they could have, um, gone there quicker. So for example, uh, when I have leaders on the show of any background, of any faith background or no faith at all, they're gonna, they are all going to talk. If they're highly successful, we talk about the same thing. And I'm, I mention this a lot. I don't mind repping things out. The person who's sitting around at one o'clock in the morning watching Shark Tank with a beer and a bag of chips saying, oh, that was my idea, but never did it. And the difference between that person and the person on the show is many things, but oftentimes it is virtue, especially when you see long-term success and that they were willing to take action on their decisions. Okay. They're first of all, willing to make a decision then take action on it. They were, they were, they had the fortitude to get through it, to actually make it happen. So what happens is when people have had high levels of success or been in effective levels of leadership and you get to there and you talk, well, what made it happen? There's an enormous amount of time on culture, but people are watching Shark Tank. They think that the answer would have been technology. And that's what they, t- they spend their time thinking about, not these big higher things. Like, I mean, how about this to your answer? What would you have said? You said, do whatever you're doing to the best of your ability because it's going to lead to something greater later on. Then you said, read a ton. You emphasize two intense portions of your faith. Those things are all about shaping and forming the person so you can shape and form other people. That's a huge, huge takeaway. And a lot of people miss that. This is the Dave Durant Show. We'll be back in just a moment with our Q&A segment. All right, welcome back to the Dave Duran Show. Dave, we had some great questions last week, and I know we uh, have our listeners sending in questions. Don't forget to send in your questions to Dave at LeadingGiants.com. This week, Dave, we have a particular question that you referenced at the beginning of the show. Uh, This particular student says, my entrepreneur professor at my university claims that socialism and entrepreneurship are compatible. FYI, he never ran a company or started one. I was shut down when I asked him how to reconcile the incentive and financial implications of socialism with human nature. He didn't appreciate that. Dave, what are your thoughts? Uh, I love the way the question is, uh, is worded. This is not an unusual thing. I've actually heard this from more than one person that they're at a university and they're taking an entrepreneur or business course by somebody that's never run a business, never led a team or never started a company. Frankly speaking, I find that to be a bit of a tragedy. Um, teaching entrepreneurship, never having had the experience, is it's, it's it's a little bit like I don't know learning law from people that have never practiced and learning you know trying to do a residency as a as a physician without doctors in the residency. I mean, right? Um, there are so many misperceptions about entrepreneurship, and until you're actually in it, you don't know the difference. So. Uh, Nico, you know this. Uh, I posted something years ago. That's right. And 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 it was just a f- kind of a flipping post about can you be a socialism or a socialist and and an entrepreneur? And I even kind of made the joke. I was like, well, this is going to be a ten second, a ten second post. And the answer it was just going to say, hey, no, you can't be. End of story. 
Um, but I went on to explain why. What was fascinating is the number of comments that came in telling me that that I had no idea what socialism was, okay, and that I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship, which is a fascinating thing. And looking at the people who made the comments and kind of diving in to see who they were, most of these were like these kind of Ivy League educated people that have never ran a business ever before and have never spoken to somebody who actually had to get through socialism or escaped their socialist country uh, under duress, realizing that the economic games were like way, uh, way off balance. So um, let me just say it's, it's, it's a silly idea to believe that you can have both. It is a silly idea. It doesn't matter how educated a person is that slams out this idea that you can have both. You simply cannot. And I'm, I'll explain why, even though it's, it's, a funny, it's funny even having to do this. All right, let's just take incentive. In socialism, basically, you're, you're, basically you're, 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 you're trying to make everything equal for all people. And it just doesn't work. You can't go to your salespeople who are high performers and say, you know what, you've earned a, a lot of income. You've done really well. I feel bad for these people who haven't worked hard. So we're going to give them some of your money and you're not going to have it. It doesn't work. You can't take your top performers who are earning bonuses or at the level of earning bonuses and then take them away. Um, it just doesn't work. Uh, now, there is a certain amount of minimum pay that would be related, related to what a socialist would talk about, and that would be like a fair, fair pay. But when you talk about even the social teachings of the Catholic Church, they're, they're not about making all things equal for every person, because that just doesn't make sense. I mean, God isn't like that. There's actual hierarchy with angels, and in heaven, there's going to be higher status and lower status. You know, how, you know, people say, well, how in the world can somebody have like a higher place in heaven than somebody else? Aren't we all going to be blissful and happy? Well, yeah. And the analogy that I've heard for this is like, if you have, if, if, if you're um, a two gallon jar and you're filled with water and somebody else is a thimble and they're filled with water and somebody else is the Atlantic ocean and they're filled with water, you're all full. You you can't be any more full of happiness because that's the capacity of happy for you. Even though one has a greater capacity than somebody else, you all have equal fullness. So you've got St. Therese, she's probably the Atlantic Ocean. If I ever scoot in, I'm probably going to be a thimble. Uh, but I that's that's the thing that, that we want. We want that fullness. And um, when it comes to uh, socialism in the workplace, there's a fullness. A person has a certain job. And that job uh, doesn't take a lot of education. It doesn't take a lot of skill. And uh, so the responsibility is important to get the job done, but it's not the same risk or weight of the responsibility of the person who started the company or other people who are investing and taking uh, share in it that way or have had to spend a lot of years educating themselves and a lot of money educating themselves or a lot of time developing a skill, which now they merit a greater pay. And frankly speaking, they should be paid that. And if you were to go to a super, super high-ranking person who studied and worked as hard as they possibly could and say, we're going to pay you the same as an entry-level person that did not sacrifice that way to get there, that's not going to go well for you. There was a CEO on the cover of a magazine years ago. I said, is this the greatest CEO ever? And he read an article saying that people are unhappy, that, that you, know, you can buy happiness, basically, that um, it isn't true that money doesn't buy happiness that at a certain level of income, you start to have uh, more confidence and you have your needs met at a greater level and you actually do experience a greater level of happiness. And that's actually, this, there's a lot of studies that show this. And I don't remember what the level was at the time, 
But so he went out and he, he literally took a great risk and he jacked all of the employees in his company up to that level. And he almost went out of business. I think it was a credit card processing company. He almost yeah. went out of business when he did it. And there were a lot of different people that, that, that took shots at this guy on one side or the other. Some were like, he's the best CEO ever. He's amazing. And other people were like, he's naive and stupid. My, my understanding of this is right in between. And I'll tell you why. Um, uh, let's begin with why he was naive about this. And he was even shocked by this. I think I read an article like years later that the company recovered and it's doing well, but he almost went out of business because of it. Right. The reason he almost went out of business is because he had all sorts of employees who started at lower level compensation and had been there for years to get to that same level of pay. And now all of a sudden he just goes in, boom, and he takes everyone's pay up to that level. And so these top leaders were saying, wait, I worked here for this long to get that, and you're just giving it to him because why? Well, then you better jack my pay up as much as this pay up, and he couldn't afford to do it. So he lost a lot of people, and they really struggled financially. So that was naive. Um, he, I mean, it almost cost him his business. But what is so good about it, and I'm not suggesting people do this, what is good about it is he cared, and it's good to care. And he even for for went his pay for quite some time in order to get there. So he sacrificed in doing this. I mean, if you're starting a company at that level and you're going to pay everyone at that level to begin with, and then you're going to provide incentive to move forward, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think that paying people well to begin with makes a whole lot of sense. I've had negotiations with certain people where I, I, I'm i talking to them about their compensation. They make an offer to me and, and then I say, well, why don't we make it a little bit more even? Because I want them to be motivated and excited. Um, but it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes a startup can't afford to do that sort of thing too. And you have to grow into it. So he, he did a, a, a very good thing in a very naive way is the way that I would actually summarize it. And, um, and, and you know, because the, the socialistic impact that he threw in there almost devastated him. I wouldn't say it's a socialistic thing, though, to give people fair pay like that. It was a socialistic implementation, no doubt about it, and that almost cost him. But um, after a while, uh, it's, it really has nothing to do with socialism. Uh, so socialism doesn't understand incentive. It doesn't understand human nature, frankly speaking. Uh, and the other thing that it doesn't do is it doesn't understand spending responsibly. Uh, if, if this guy were running his company like a socialist, he'd have been out of business for sure because he'd have just been jacking up more expenses and trying to make the problem go away by buying this new thing and that new thing and it wouldn't have worked. So socialism basically is like trying to survive by eating your foot and then your ankle and then your knee until you realize, wait a second, there's only so much for me to go around and I have to use other people's money because the resources that I have here are limited and they're going to go away. So for those two reasons, socialism doesn't understand human nature. It doesn't understand incentive. And because socialism doesn't understand the conservative need to spend less than you actually have, you can't really be an entrepreneur and grow a business. Now, some people say, well, Dave, you can just keep fundraising. Well, yeah, you can. But at a certain point, the investors are going to want to know this thing is going to be profitable. And if it's not, it starts to implode. So that is a real thing. Well, you know, Dave, I wonder if the, if the professor would be uh, willing to take a pay cut to janitor pay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Why don't we pay you? So, exactly. That's a great idea. Uh, or I, what I always want to do is I just say, go run the company on that principle then. Yeah. Go do it. Yeah. 
Um, so there's some people that like misinterpret socialism and they say, look, socialism is, in fact, you know what they said? Mark Zuckerberg is a socialist. Look at him. And they, that was one of the comments. Okay. Look at Mark Zuckerberg when he was actually on the floor, uh, uh, in Washington, he said, I am absolutely not a socialist. I am absolutely a capitalist in his own words there under oath. So he's not a socialist. I mean, you know, there's a difference between a company promoting socialism and a company operating under socialist principles. One is a marketing thing in order to virtue signal probably, or to, you know, I don't know what in the world, the motive, I do know the motives, but they irritate me too much to talk about right now. But, but, um, but you can't run the company like that. Okay. What's the next question? All right. We got about five minutes here, Dave. So the second question we received is, I have four kids, one of my sons and one of my daughters are very motivated, sports, grades, etc. The other two are so hard to get interested and motivated towards sports or even to have high standards in school. How in the world are they all related, number one? Number two, my question, my true question is, how do you motivate unmotivated kids? Yeah, you know, when you have a lot of kids, it's easy to wonder how they're all related <laughs> or related to you, you know? Um, we're all different. You know, we have different temperaments. And I always remind people there's two different um, things that come with the temperament. The temperaments, of course, if you hear of Meyer-Briggs studies and all these different types of things, but they originally, you know, Hippocrates, uh, uh, I think he was a physician, I, you know, thousands of years BC, he came up with the caloric, phlegmatic, melancholic, and sanguine temperaments. And they're remarkably accurate. In fact, almost all the the personality tests and studies we have today are are based on those. And um, we have natural vices and natural virtues that come from them. So a caloric person is naturally more motivated. Uh, it is likely that these two are have a caloric temperament to them, and the other ones may have a sanguine or a phlegmatic temperament. Sanguine is an interesting person because they're very fun to be around. If you look in their closet uh, over their lifetime, you'll see... Um, a tennis racket, Rosetta Stone, a tutu, and a guitar. They can't play music. They, they, they don't know how to play tennis. They can't speak a foreign language, uh, and they can't dance. But they have a matching outfit for everything. So they get super excited about things. They're fun to have in a meeting, but they just they lose motivation pretty quickly. Um, so what's great about them is they're social. Uh, they can communicate generally effectively, uh, but they lack motivation sometimes. A caloric person is great because they're motivated and a leader, but the problem is they can mow you down to get their way and they can become a dictator if they're not regulated. So I wouldn't look at this as though the motivated ones are good, and I'm sure this parent is not. They love their kids equally. And then the un- unmotivated ones are bad. I think uh, if I'm if kind of, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into the question, but it seemed like they were trying to maybe push the ones that weren't motivated in sports into sports when maybe they're motivated by other things. So I actually, some of my kids are very motivated by sports. I have six. They're all adults now, but uh, others were not, not at all motivated by sports, but they found their way. And one of them was just motivated by anything tactile, like, you know, building uh, uh, things. I mean, you could take anything apart and put it back together. I mean, for me personally, if I see some assembly required, I'm like, can I just go to the dentist instead? (laughs) But he sees it and he thinks this is the best news ever, some assembly required, you know? And one of my other sons is kind of in between. He loves sports and he also likes building and fixing things. And some of them like music more than others or art or design. So I think finding the thing that is good for them matters and we misinterpret things. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, you love um, peanut butter. And so it's very easy for you to love peanut butter, but you're looking at somebody else that doesn't like it and you're forcing them to eat it and love it. Well, that's, that's what happens when we're trying to move people into things that they're not necessarily interested in. 
um, we have to kind of open up the door to some things that they are. Now, the other side of it too, though, is just creating disciplines. I mean, you know, the, the key to success is doing what we don't feel like doing, which is a motivational message in and of itself. So uh, building the virtues within these kids of prudence and justice, and then fortitude, which is one of these and temperance, uh, by making sure that they're doing small activities on a regular basis and letting them know that the, there is a, an incredible value in doing things you don't feel like doing. And see, one of the things I use as an argument is I'm bored or I don't like this. That didn't work with my kids. I was like, well, first of all, boredom is a personality flaw. It's a character flaw. So if you have that, you need to fix it. And second of all, the key to success is doing what you don't feel like doing. So when you tell me you don't feel like doing something, you know exactly what I'm going to encourage you to do. Finish it. Do a little bit of it each and every day. Now, if there's other things you like doing that don't bore you, that you're motivated to do, then show them to me and I'll make sure that I have greater access to you for them. But if you're not willing to actually find those things, then I'm going to provide the things you're going to be motivated for. And if you tell me they bore you and you don't feel like doing them, I'm going to give you more of them. <laughs> and all of a sudden they realize, wait a second, I'm not going to out negotiate this guy. He seems to have pretty strong convictions here. But you need to use some humor and jest and do things back and forth to get that done as well, too. Anyway, this has been the Dave Duran Show. You can email me at dave at leadinggiants.com, dave at leadinggiants.com. If you want your questions answered, I can't wait to be with you next week. God bless you. Have a great week. Have a great week.